and biblical metaphors. City life and biblical metaphors. Just for now, we're going to be flicking through many scriptures, but just for a little verse to start us off, turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. And verse 39. But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, Suffer me to speak unto the people. This verse tells us a lot about Paul. And we want to open up a lot of scriptures and bring you a background in Paul, first of all. Because look at what he says in this verse. He said, tells us that he was a Jew. The city he came from, a Jew of Tarsus. And the city of Cilicia. And he was a citizen of no mean city. And the idea there is, the city was quite famous or even infamous. It was well known. It wasn't a little village he came from, but quite a metropolis city at that time. So that's why he's saying it's no mean city. It didn't mean it wasn't mean in the people that there were. In fact, it could have been the opposite. We want to look at that. Now, when we look at parables that our Lord brings, we look at sowers sowing seed. We look at um, we look at fishermen and fishing and drawing in nets and all these are parables. But we want to look at metaphors where, metaphorically speaking, Paul takes things that he learned from city life and he applies it into the gospel. And we want to look at Now, there's a spiritual context and content in it, so please don't think it's just a matter of looking around the city and seeing what he sees. He brings it into the, into the gospel. He brings it right into city life, or from city life right into his life and into that, okay? So first of all, Look what he says. He says, I am a Jew. I am a Jew. Now, Ian, take note of this if you're taking notes. The statement here, I am a Jew, is one, it's a statement of religion. It's a statement of religion. But also, what we must recognize is when some say they're Jews, they may not even be religious, but they live in the province of Judea. They may not even be Israelite, but they live in the province of Judea as well. It's like, uh, it's like a, a, an Englishman living here in Ulster. And he say, well, I'm an Englishman, but he lives in Ulster. And he lives in part of Ireland, in Northern Ireland in particular. And so it starts to divide up. We want to look at this. Because Paul then starts to look at the cities and the things he brings to the cities in. And it's tremendous what he brings into the gospel, okay? So first of all, here's a statement of religion or uh, provincial residents, and of course, it's the Judaism is the religion. Turn with me to Romans chapter eleven. Romans chapter eleven, and verse one. Paul says, "I say then, hath God cast away His people?" This was dis- Israel now dispersed, but notice what he says: Has God cast away His people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite. Take note of what he says here. Of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? 
So to Paul here, he, he tells us now he's an Israelite. First of all, he's a Jew. Now he's an Israelite. He's also an Israelite, I should say as well. He's also an Israelite. But he also tells us something else here. He's of the seed of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin. Now we're building up a case. In other words, Paul is stating that he's of a certain race or a certain nationality. The family of Abraham were Hebrews. There's nowhere in Scripture you'll read Abraham was a Jew. Abraham's grandson was Isaac. Isaac became known as Israel. Remember, his name was changed. He had 12 sons, and one of his sons was called Judah. That's where you get the name Jew from, so there were no Jews in Abraham's day. There was none in Jacob's day either, or Isaac's before him as his father's. So here we're, 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 we're looking at facts here that this is further down the line now, of course, in, in the days of Paul. But notice what he says. Here is a family of Abraham. And of course, then you come from a race to a nationality of Israel. Of course, it's still the same race, but it's a nationality. Israel became a family. They became a nation under 12 tribes. Then they became a kingdom. They weren't a kingdom really in its fullest sense until, well, Saul uh, of Kish became the first king, but really the King David was, they became a kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And a principality means there's a, a ruling prince. So you have to, they became a kingdom later on, okay? So notice this here. So Israelite, Jews mentioned. Um, uh, Abraham is mentioned. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And verse 5, Paul says, verse 4, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. So notice Paul's bringing out his lineage here. He said, I can't trust in the flesh for my salvation, for one. Can't trust in who I am or family descent. I can't trust in my nationality. I can trust in nothing else. He says, and if you can, he says, and look what I'm bringing out to tell you who I am. Now notice this, circumcised the eighth day. This is from the covenant of Abraham with the Lord, the Lord with Abraham and then brought into the law of Moses. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrew, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul's now showing you who he is to himself as flesh and saying, look this does not merit me anything. There's nothing I can do to be saved. It's all by grace through faith. But notice this. Notice what he says here. Go with me to Acts 22. So we're building up a case. I'll run through these briefly as I'm when we finish these so you can get an idea of all of us put together. Acts chapter 22 and verse 25. And they bound him with thongs. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Now, Paul, hold on a second. How can you be all these things? Okay. Okay, then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? And he said, Yea. 
And the chief captain answered with a, with a great sum, ordained I this freedom. And Paul said, but I was free born. Okay, so he's a Roman citizen. So here's how we place to put this together. Here's Paul's lineage, if you want, or his pedigree. By race, he was an Hebrew. By nationality, he was an Israelite. By tribe, he was a Benjaminite. By religion, he was a Jew or from Judaism. By sect of that faith, he was a Pharisee. By citizenship, he was a Roman. By conversion then, what about that? Acts chapter 9 tells us of the conversion then. He reiterates it in Acts chapter 26 whenever he's given an account of his conversion as well. Remember on the road to Damascus and the Lord comes. So by conversion, he's a Christian. But by calling, he's an apostle. Okay? By calling, he's an apostle. For example, if you go even to, to many of the, the beginnings of his, of his books, the apostle Paul is known to have written 13 uh, books or letters in the, in the New Testament. 13 of them. Some believe, and I would lean towards very strongly, that he also wrote the book of Hebrews. And that would be 14. If at all you put it into chapters, so there's no chapters in the original, it would be 99 chapters counting the book of Hebrews of, our, of your New Testament Paul has written. And then he's also mentioned in uh, Acts chapter 7, then he's, I think it's 6, 7, then he's mentioned in 9, he's, then he's mentioned 14 right through to the end of the chapters. Peter's it's slotted in there with the, the letting down of the sheets by the four corners and so on, and going to the centurion's house from about 10, 11, 12, 13, around that, Peter's about that area. So you can see Paul has a big chunk out of the New Testament here. So it's important that we get behind, get the look behind the background of what he is and who he was and what he uh, and why the Lord would use a man like this. He persecuted the church. Paul is admitting that. In fact, Paul called himself the chiefest of sinners. So you can see now, Paul says he, he, he had zeal doing it and uh, touching the law. He was blameless. In other words, he, was the, he really strove to keep the law to the best of his ability and better than most people. That's, it's not that he was perfect, but that's what it means. So here we can see Paul's pedigree. Yet it wasn't enough. Christ had to come and convert him to himself. God had to make himself known. Isn't it strange how you can know, think you know God so well and think you're working so much for God and doing so much in his service and not know him at all? Strange, isn't it? So whenever we look at Acts chapter 21 and verse 39. Paul's telling us now what city he was from. Chapter 1 verse 13 says, but Paul says, but Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a city, a citizen of no mean, a citizen of no mean city. Excuse my eyesight there, I can hardly see that. A citizen of no mean city. Okay. 
If you were to live in Paul's day, people think when we see this, well, these wee cities, and you go into them, there's just a few houses around, and everybody must have been great. And you go and preach the gospel, and the Holy Ghost fell, and everybody got saved. And it was a wonderful time. So easy, oh Lord, give us back the days of apostolic blessing. And I would say amen to the apostolic moving and power of the Holy Spirit. We need that. But wherever they went, there was either a riot or there was a revival. So whenever there's a, a revival in someone's heart as a Christian, whenever there's a revival and God starts moving by his spirit in a meeting, you can always expect the goats to lift their heads. Not just the sheep. Because riot comes every time there's revival. There's cursing comes every time there's the blessing. And in every city they went in, that happened. And you know, the cities were actually very dangerous. I'm going to quote some of the ancient poets and historians for you who spoke about some of the cities to give you a little bit of a background. So we're going to be talking about cities like, say for example, Rome and Corinth, where you get the Corinthian letters to, okay? Or Ephesus or uh, Athens or all those major cities. We're all similar in many ways, okay? For example... There's an ancient historian called Juvial. And Juvial was from around 45 to 127 AD. Listen to what he says. And he describes Rome. And he says, it was a grim, hostile, and a dangerous place. Now, can you imagine going to preach the gospel there? It was a grim, and hostile, and a dangerous place. In fact, as many people have written... Um, for example, Horace. Now, Horace is, was a, a, a Roman poet. And Horace had written about Corinth, the city of Corinth. And that's what his English-known name is. He's a big, long name, like three parts to it. And everybody calls him Horace, the, the Roman poet. And Horace wrote about Corinth, and others got uh, around the area, knew the name uh, or the, the nickname, what, what Corinth got, or the people of Corinth. Corinth was on a little piece of land where uh, it came, where it was a pinpoint where all these different nationalities crossed over, and there was much trade in it. And so then when you got trade and you get different people with freedom of movement, if you want, well, what do you get? You get other religions coming in and crossing each other and settling down and building their, their, their places of worship. And that's why we have to watch for the European Union. But nevertheless, Corinth was the same. And what happens as well with that comes all their, their ideologies and their immoralities uh, and their, their heathen deities. And with that also comes their sexual immoralities and all their, all their uh, ideas about sexuality. So it became a cesspit. And there was a saying at the time, anywhere you went, And if someone was living a sexually immoral lifestyle or they were just a real crude, rough person who who had very little or to low morals, you used to say to them, man, stop playing the Corinthian. That's how bad Corinth was. Stop playing the Corinthian or he's playing the Corinthian if we were talking about him. So you can see the idea. Everyone was thinking, you know, if you go to Corinth, and it must be great because the church is there and they're all the gifts of the Spirit and they're all speaking with all their tongues and they're doing this and all these ministering gifts and words of prophecy and words of knowledge. Paul had the right to a man who was having his father's wife. And they weren't doing anything in it because a lot of the world was still seeping through it. 
And Paul writes this, Second Corinthians, and tells him, you know, set him aside, put him out if he won't listen to instruction of the church. He says, uh, uh, give him over to Satan, to the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved. So all of these things were happening. And this is in the church, by the way. But outside of this, it was just corrupt everywhere. So Paul goes in to a place like this to preach the gospel. Can you imagine that not only the religious uh, demeanor of this man and character, but now he's being saved and he's being born again and he's being filled with the Spirit and he's leading a holy lifestyle and he sees all this. It must have been, he must have been really grieved. For when you read when Paul goes to Athens in Acts chapter 16 and he sees the altar to the unknown God, it says Paul's spirit was stirred in him. And you and I think, oh, I'm stirring my spirit up. You know, let's speak in tongues. We better stir my spirit up. Let's get a bit excited. That's not what it means. It means he was deeply grieved and agitated that he couldn't contain himself. And he had to shout out, ye men of Athens, in spite of the danger. So Horace says that, that not only did, were they, the saying was to play the harlot, but none but the tough could survive in Corinth. Now, this is what this poet Horace says. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So we look at Paul when he's talking about when he first goes to Corinth. And now he's writing this letter to them. And we'll just lift a little verse, a little telltale verse. Let's go to verse 2. Let's go to verse 1. It's only three verses. And I, brethren, when I came unto you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now notice this. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. See the idea here that he was in fear and much trembling? It really isn't so much looking at he's coming in fear and trembling of the gospel. Paul is illuminated by this gospel. Paul has been rejuvenated by this gospel. Paul has been quickened by the Spirit and filled with the, the Spirit. Now he's full of the Word of God and the power of, of the anointing of the Spirit's upon him. So it's not that he's looking at. But Paul's going into a city that's just like I have explained to you. And he's going, oh dear, <laughs> this could be tough, Lord. And the Lord says, Paul, you have to go and preach in these cities. I want you to go and preach. And the humanity of Paul, you can see now he's going, like, I'm a man and I do have my fears. Weakness and much trembling. Listen, brethren, I'm full of the power of the Spirit. And I'm fighting against my own fear. But there's nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So can you see now even whenever you're um, concerned about a witness that you're giving someone or whether someone will accept what you're going to say or the Lord had sent you someone and you say, Lord, I don't think I could do that. You say, you can go in the power of the Lord. You can go according to his word and think of nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And think of him being risen from the dead and now living in you. And so it gives you and I the, the, the ability and the unction to be able to go out and do these things. And Paul says, look, it seems like I was powerful in my word, but it was God's word. See me, really? I was quaking. I was afraid. So you had to be brave and you had to be tough to survive in Corinth. So Paul writes a little line like this. So we just tend sometimes to glance over these wee words. You know, we don't realize, what is he talking about? This is what he's talking about here. Okay. So 
Nighttime came in these cities. And when nighttime came, people were afraid. And if you read some of the ancient writers, when dusk came, the city basically shut down. Now, maybe it was a bit like Belfast in the 70s and the 80s, because when I was growing up, wee boy, and you were, you jumped on a bus and you went into the city centre and your mum and dad not knowing, and the, the big security barriers were all around the city and you had to go through and get searched in them, and, you know, you couldn't get in and out except through the turnstiles. And once nighttime came, the roads closed, the gates closed, the army closed them, you were beat. <laughs> you, you had to get out of there because it was so dangerous, you had to get out. And I remember sometimes five o'clock coming, I made sure I was heading to the bus at the city hall to make sure I was home because it was so dangerous in Belfast at night. And maybe that's how, even worse, how these people felt. So what it was was they went in and Juvenile again, he says, tells us that, listen to this, to go out to supper in Rome without having first made your will was to be guilty of an act of gross negligence. (laughs) So if you're going to fear supper at night in Rome, make sure your will's ready because you may not make it back. And I think Paul's going here. And his other cities are, are similar. Think of Corinth and others. So whenever you're reading these, it gives you an idea of the cities these men went into because we tend to think they just went in the priest and there's a wee bit of a ruckus. And, you know, like Peter, 3,000, the day of Pentecost, come to Christ. Sirs, what must we do to be saved? You know, the Philippian jailer. What's not like that? So when you and I are going out there, it's not that we're getting it hard and they got it easy. And if it was like that, we'd be doing okay. These men were put to death. Read, read Hebrews chapter 11, coming right down into the, into the end of the chapter. You know, even right from, uh, uh, from the Old Testament up. And they had to do it by faith, trusting God for every step of the way. So the city had uh, narrow streets, and the, the, the lighting was very poor, and it got almost really the pitch black. And some of the ancient writers tells us that the place, this is their words, the city had narrow streets with very little lighting, and the place was plunging into impenetrable darkness. Out came murderers, housebreakers, and muggers. Okay? Out came housebreakers, murderers, housebreakers, and muggers. So most people fled home and barricaded themselves in, shutting their doors. And you think of what the Lord's talking about in his parable, even when a man comes banging on the door at night and he's shouting out, what do you want, my children are in bed? Now you get an idea. You're saying, well, you know, this man ain't going to open up for loving their money, as we would say. My children are in bed. And so the Lord's saying, a man comes looking for bread. A visitor's mind comes during the night and I have nothing to give him. Why are you banging my door? My door's shut, it's locked. It's well closed. I ain't coming out, it's dark. So you can get a wee bit of an idea now when you're reading those things. Now, most people, as I said, barricaded them in. And after that, everyone came out and the darkness cloaked their evil deeds. Okay? All kinds of sin, sexual immorality. There was brothels, there was drunkenness. And so Paul used this for a metaphor in some of his writings. Go with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 now. So remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2 there we looked at how Paul says much with fear and trembling. Now we're going into 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and that's where I run down to verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. 
who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsel of the hearts and then shall every man have praise of God. Now, we're going to go on a little journey here with light and darkness. Paul is looking and he's taking these things that's happening in darkness and then he's looking at the things that happens in the light where people come out in the day and they're happening in the light and he starts to weigh the two of them up and say, spiritually, this is their heart being manifest. Okay? Spiritually, this is the spirit that's behind each one of these. Which kingdom are you in? Okay? So you, you get the idea of it now when we're looking at this. Okay, so... The word darkness here characterizes uh, a, a different children than the children of light. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 6 now. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Now you notice the list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor reviters, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. These are those who are at night in their darkness. Okay? Then he goes on. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here he's saying, you were in this at night, living like this. But when you received the gospel, the light of God's word came in. Now you're children of the day. You're like those people who are out and they're not getting up to those things. So it's not the, the change of a lifestyle that saves. What he's saying is there's a change of heart and it changes your life. Does that make sense to you? You can see that. So he's saying this is what they're getting up to at night. But whenever Christ comes into your life and changes, that's why if someone says to you, I'm saved, and there's no change of life, they're not saved. They're not saved because the Lord changes a life. He makes you a new creature. And the old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You're not perfect. But you're changed. You're different. So, Go with me to First Thessalonians, please. First Thessalonians. And chapter five. Okay. Of the times and seasons, brethren. You have no need that I write unto you for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Who's going to be who's who's going to be judged during the night when they're found in that condition? The ones in the night. That doesn't mean literally nighttime. It means those who are living that lifestyle for Christ has not come in to save and change the life. Okay. For when they shall say peace and safety and sudden destruction cometh upon them as, as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, ye are not in darkness that the, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light 
and the children of the day. Take note of that. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for an helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Can you see the difference now? Paul's showing you. So he's taking a city metaphor, and he's saying it at night, in this place, he says, Lord, this place is a cesspit. Whatever city he's going into, and darkness, the stuff that's going on here, Lord, this is, this is terrible. And then he's saying to the people, who are coming to Christ, he's saying, you see, here's the change of life in Christ. Here's the difference he makes in your life. And there are going to be those, when Christ returns, they'll be as though they are those who are living in that darkness. But it'll be those who are children of the light or of the day, who have the glorious gospel shining in their life. So, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 8, please. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see the difference now? For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things are reproved, are reproved, are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever, for whatsoever doeth, doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. So Paul again is saying, look, don't be living in this lifestyle. If you've been saved, you're changed. Different life, different person, new creature. And he said, let's be ready. Let's be up and doing. Let's be serving the Lord. Let's be passionate for him. And he says look, that you are now light. This is who you were. You're sometimes in darkness. He says, but now you're light in the Lord. It's the only way you can be in light is in him. No matter what we do, we're in him. Okay. Here's one. John chapter 3, please. John's gospel chapter 3. And let your eye run down to verse 18. He that believeth on him. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Speaking of himself too. Believing in the Lord Jesus himself. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now notice this. 
We don't need to condemn the world. You don't need to have a ministry of condemnation to the world either. We need to make them known of their sin through the preaching of the word, witnessing of the word, and the Holy Spirit doing the rest. But we don't need to condemn them because we can't. They're already under condemnation because they haven't received Christ, because they haven't believed in Christ. Everyone out there who thinks, well, I'm not a bad person, I'm, and, and, and I don't know if all of us were, but I was like that. I was probably, could be class, well, one of Paul's crew when he was Saul, the chiefest of sinners. But here the Lord says, you know, they're already condemned. So everyone outside of Christ is condemned. But only those who now come, they're in darkness, they're workers of the night, even though they're the nicest of people, even though they're the most religious of people. They're workers of the night. So what does that mean? That means they need to receive Christ to become into the light from the dark day, from the night into the day, as it were, from dark into light and out of condemnation. And that's why there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not off the flesh but off the spirit. And the idea is people say, oh, you see, if you do something wrong and you're a Christian and you've let them down, then you see you're walking in the flesh so you're condemned. That's not what it means. The idea is who is walking in the spirit. Yes, you're failing at times, yet you're falling, but you're living in grace, trusting in the Lord. But walking in the flesh is continually, habitually sinning with, with ease. No change of life. Walking in darkness rather than light. Does that make sense to you? No? So notice this. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, and they are wrought of God. So here's the difference now on those who are at night and those in the day, those of the darkness, those of the light, and those who say, well, I'm not a, I, I can sort of show myself up sometimes during the day, but I love to go out here at night, and this is what we get up to. And there's a spiritual contact Context put behind that. If you can see what the Lord is showing here too. So Paul is bringing this out and the Lord speaks of night and day, light and darkness too. And he says they don't want to come to the light. In other words, they wouldn't have, Paul would even tell you, they wouldn't have the, the brothels in the daytime because they'd be too ashamed. They have food responsibility to have to change if everyone could see them. So what happens is, is then they have it at night they wouldn't do the murders because they'd be murdered in return or, or they'd be put to death or they'd be in prison for thieving and housebreaking, they'd get caught. So they do it at night. And so the idea here is this metaphor is taken out and says, look, this is their heart being manifest in the dark and this is what they love. They won't do it because people will know it'll be reproved, it'll be known, it'll be shown. And the light of the word, that's why when people come and they hear the gospel, it's the amount of people have said to me when I've been going around speaking to them or asking them to come to church. If I walk up the village and I'm talking, so I, someone waves and stops to talk to me, I always never try to miss an opportunity to say, why don't you come to church? Why don't you come to church? And they oh, you know, 
if I go in there, the place would fall down and all these sort of excuses. Or Some of them actually say, if I go in there, I'd be afraid of getting saved. <laughs> Seriously, some would say that. I'm afraid of getting in there because I get saved. Well, that's what... Because responsibility comes from the gospel. And when man hears it, he thinks, well, if I don't hear it, I don't have responsibility of it. And if I don't have responsibility of it, then sure, maybe I can't be judged on it. But what they don't realize is they're works of darkness, they're living in the night, and they're already under condemnation. And we're trying to bring them out of it. Show the light. And it says, the light of the word uh, 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 shows a man and a woman up for who they really are. A sinner. Worthy of nothing but hell. Judgment eternal damnation and punishment who wants to be told that so you can see now why they don't come to the light okay let's move on a little 1st Corinthians chapter 3 please we're going to just change it a little here then and go from night to darkness. Don't look at the buildings and how Paul takes some of these things up. First Corinthians, please. Let me just get it myself. I was too busy taking a drink there. Okay, First Corinthians chapter 3. And verse uh, 9. For we are laborers together with God, and you are God's husbandry, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. Now, this is important for what we're going to show you. I might need another week to take this little bit out and to show you more of it. I'll see how I get on here in the next few minutes. But notice now, we're talking about building. So think of building buildings. Although he's talking about building the church here, building people in Christ. So he's taking this metaphor. Notice. For if other lay foundation, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Okay? So notice what Paul's saying. What we are in Christ, working for Christ, not for salvation, not working to be saved, working for Christ because we are saved, saved by grace. So we are working in the grace of God and in the power of the Lord. And what he's saying here is, is there's a foundation that's been built. You have come to Christ. We're building this, this building, temple of living stones or lively stones, as Peter calls it. And he says, we're building this up, but you're building in your life of your service for God and it will be tried. What sort of house are you building? What sort of house? What is, the, what is the message you're giving people? What is, how is your faithfulness to God and his house and his word? Uh, you know, and Paul's saying, well, what is your service for God? Is this just a, 
a food in, food out religious thing? Is this uh, something, well, Lord, here's a little bit, or I'm, I'm going to go off on a tangent and do something myself and hand it to God that he has never, ever asked me to do? He says, because it's going to be tried by fire. So what does he mean about that? Well, stay with me, and hopefully I'll get there tonight. But here's where I want to take you just before we go any further. Whenever the populations of these cities started to expand, they go out so far, and they haven't got the, the means to go further than as far as we would today. It takes far longer uh, to maybe even go in for hitting rocks or mountains or whatever. They haven't got the same stabilities. So they start, believe it or not, building upwards. Do you know that they actually had uh, ancient skyscrapers? Now, not like we have today, but their skyscrapers, as they would have thought, were six to eight stories high, some of them. And Whenever we're going to show you a little bit of proof of one of them anyhow in Scripture in a minute. You'll notice as soon as we read it. And the people started building up. And this is why, because it was easy, um, not only were they building out, there wasn't the same transport to get across. This, there wasn't the same abilities to stretch out if they were coming into hillsides and mountains, but it was safer as well. People, uh, they were able to guard the city, the surrounding area of it, for attack from enemy forces. As well, so they were able to. They started building up a little. Now, they weren't the way we have today. So, but they were. We're told up to six to eight stories high. Ancient writer Strabo. Listen to this. He says the houses of Tyre were almost higher than those of Rome itself. Now you think of the big colosseums and all those things going high. You imagine if we can build those. Well, what were these buildings like as well? Talking about Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and so on as well. Well, go with me to Acts 20. Acts chapter 20. Okay. And verse 7. So verse 7 says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continue his speech until midnight, Paul's a man after my own heart. And there were many lights in the upper chamber. Notice this. In the upper chamber where they had gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep as Paul was long preaching. He sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft or the third floor and was taken up dead that's Irish, isn't it? He was taken up dead. And was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him, embracing him and said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. This young man was three floors up. Three floors up, listening to Paul preaching. So it shows you the start building up. And Strabo says some of these were like even as tall or taller than Rome itself. So what was all this in Adolf as well was that Whenever you had uh, richer people, they had what we would class today as detached buildings or even semi-detached, depending on how rich you were. But the poor lived in what we would call apartments or flats today or different levels on the floor of a building. Problem was, it was the materials that they were built out of. Also, these materials, how strong they were when fire came, how fireproof or how long they would last in a fire? And would the people be able to have time to make it out from a fire? And if they did, uh, you know, would they be badly burnt? And all these things were thought of then. They hadn't got the fire brigade and all those sort of things that we have today, okay? So when Paul talks about um, 
go, go back to that letter, to the First Corinthians chapter uh, 3, please. And he says, in verse 12, If any man build her upon foundation, the found, this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones. Notice, here he's speaking of the richer ones building. This is what their houses are like, gold, silver, precious stones. See, if a fire comes, they have a better chance to get out because they're stronger. They have a better chance before the house collapses. If it's made of branches and wood and stubble and stuck together with a little bit of mud on it, he says, this will just go up like a, you know, go up like a flash. He says, now, if your work's like this for the Lord, you see how he's bringing it now into the gospel and into our service for Christ? He says, if your work's like this and you're not really building on Christ, one, you've no foundation, and if you're building something and you're, you're not really sincere and honest and true and, and you're not faithful in God's work, you're building wood, hay, and stubble. And what does he say? If any man's work, verse 14, if any man's work, sorry, verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it because it, hath, it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Can you see what Paul's using here? He's looking at these houses, because they were so closely knit together, if one caught fire, there's a good chance of the next block, the sparks just going over and catching it, boom, quickly like this. They might get out in time, he says, and they're saved, so as by fire. They're just about saved. He says, on that day, when we stand before God, just as these people run out from a burning building and they're just saved to no more because of God's grace. He says, there's going to be many like that in that day. Doesn't that show you, it's not all just, let's waft the, the heaven in a handbasket, you know. It shows you that there is a, a, a standing before Christ and giving an account of our Christian life. Giving an account of how we have lived for him or how we haven't lived for him. And our work will be tried. Some of us will have no reward and everything will be burnt up. But you'll be saved. And others will have reward because they have built solidly in Christ. Okay. Do one more point and we'll close this and I'll do another week in the Lord's will next week. Okay? Just one more. Paul uses a saying. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. Oh, we're in 1 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, yes. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And first. Verse 9. For I think that God hath set forth us as apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, unto angels, unto men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, 
Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made, notice this, as the filth of the world and are the offscoring scarring of all things unto this day. Now, who wants to be an apostle now? Can you see what Paul's saying about getting into this place, into these cities, going to preach this word? And we now in the 21st century think the Holy Ghost was poured out in the day of Pentecost. And listen, praise God. Because these men shown their weakness and what were thought of, they weren't, they weren't flying about in their jets, staying in five-star hotels and going out and preaching the conferences and, and, and having their megabucks and doing whatever. They weren't doing that. They were persecuted. They were hammered everywhere they went. They were the filth of the world, the people. I want to show you what that filth is before we close this because this is now, I don't want to be crude with it, but I want to show you, to show you what they really thought of Paul. And Paul's writing this. If you read it in the Greek, this is what Paul is saying, okay? Okay, so he says he was filth. Look at uh, verse 13. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscoring of all things unto this day. Or we are the scum. That's what he's saying. They call us filth and they call us the scum. Now this is in a place like Corinth. You know, we have to be ready because this is coming again to the Christian world. And although there's so much immorality, evil is called good. Good is now called evil. You and I must be ready and be prepared to be classed as the bigoted, the scum, and the filth, the offscoring of the world and be defamed. But are you ready for the name of Christ? This is what it means in their day, okay? The word here for filth is a big word. It's perikatharma. Perikatharma, okay? And it gives the idea of something being cleaned all around or like dust swept off a floor completely. Something cleaned all around or dust swept off the floor completely. The word here for offscoring or for scum is a word perisema. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a hard word to pronounce. And it's the dirt that's rubbed or scraped off an object. You know when you get a, a pot and something's burnt on it and you have to scar it off? It's hard on it. It's, uh, that's the idea of it, okay? So I'll tell you what Paul is saying here in a city metaphor, okay? Peri Kartharma, the word Kartharma from peri, it means, or peri means around, but Kartharma means to cleanse like the scum, as I said, of a pot. And the word is used to describe, was used to describe the lowest and the vilest of criminals. That's, they used that for all the criminals in Corinth or wherever they went around the Greek-speaking world. And it was uh, the Kartharma were those who were the vilest of the vile, the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth. Okay? So Paul says that's the name we have. But it goes further than that. It goes further than that. Uh, it gives the idea of there were. It was said in in, uh, in Rome that the, the the sewerage system was so vast in certain areas that you could go up it in a boat. 
small boat in ancient Rome. And the, the poorer places especially, but not, uh, uh, that's only in certain places, but in the poorer places and most of Rome, there was no sewerage system at all. We even know right up to a couple of hundred, few hundred years ago, there was no sewerage system in our cities. And they were, you know, they're, what they did then is what they did in Rome. So listen to this. <laughs> a well-known saying of travelers going to visit Rome says, I quote it, that you could smell Rome before reaching it. Stinking. You could smell Rome before reaching it. And what they used to do was, they used to have their, their bucket at night, or during the day, open the window and just turf it out the window. Everything. It was on the streets, and people walked through it like it was just mud. And with the heat of the day, of course, the stench would rise and the excrement would bake hard like a scum in the bottom of a pot. And you became like a lair over all the ground and it was stinking. That's the idea of it. And so Paul is turning around and he's saying, do you know what they're saying about me and other apostles who love the Lord Jesus? You're like that excrement in the ground. He used to hire people to come off their way and try and scrape it up a bit because it was baked hard. I wasn't having that for a job. Paul says, now they look at me who preaches the gospel of saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and they call me Kapharma. You're nothing but scum. You're like the lowest of the low, the vilest of the vile. You're just like a criminal. And what they actually did was, the word Kapharma was used for if there was disease came. They used to take the criminals who were the vilest of the vile, bring them out to sea and kick them out overboard for a, a redemptive offering. thinking as, you know, their gods would forgive them for this. He said, Paul says, that's what they think of us for preaching of Christ. So, here's the last and we'll close here. And we'll maybe pick up on this God willing next, next week. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, and then this will be a good place to start in the Lord's will next week. Let me see what Peter says here. First Peter 3, let your eye run down. Verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. But sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities, powers being made subject unto him.
Here's what Peter's saying. He's not saying, he is not saying baptism saves you. Okay? Baptism does not save you. What he is saying, baptism, that is submersion baptism, a believer's baptism, he's saying baptism, he says, is showing that you have come to come into obedience to the word of God. He says, but the filthiness that's still here that needs changed is guess what? Your flesh. Your flesh. The most handsomest of men, ladies, are the most beautiful of women. And people may go and think they're beautiful and lust after them. But you know something? That flesh is death. And that flesh will rot. And no matter how good looking they are, if they take an infection, you don't want to go near them. Isn't that true? Why? Because that's what the flesh is. It's, it's the part of us that holds us back. It's the part of us that keeps us from God's word. It's the part of us that causes us to stop in service. It's a part of us through, that becomes sick and, unable, uh, and disables us to be able to carry on with things that we would do for the Lord. It's the part of us that tells us, no, you don't want to go out to the house of God tonight or, or in the morning. It's, that's the part of us that gets tired. It's the part that needs changed and scraped off. That's why when Christ comes back again, the children of the day and of the light, that will be scraped off and we'll receive a new body. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. And this mortal shall put on immortality. And death will be swallowed up in life completely. Isn't that fantastic? that he's going to do that and you're going to be like a new pot, (laughs) a new pan. You're going to be totally cleansed and clean. You are uh, positionally in him, you're justified. But when he returns, even all the things that uh, this, I'm looking at my hands here, turning them back and forward, this flesh of mine is the only thing that really hinders me between me and God. You think about that. It's your flesh that hinders you in everything. It's your flesh that hinders you to get up and pray. It's your flesh that hinders you and holds you back. It's your flesh that desires the things of the world. It's your flesh that has a downward uh, look where the spirit has the upward look. The soul has the inward look. But the born again spirit looks on to God. And so God says, well, I'm going to completely scar this one. That is S-C-O-U-R, not S-C-A-R, scar. I'm going to scar it. I'm going to change that. That there will be nothing, absolutely nothing ever to hinder our very communion and fellowship with the Lord when he returns. Nothing. Not even yourself. So the old saying is, you have a threefold enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if the world got converted today and the, and the devil dropped dead, you still have an enemy, yourself, the flesh. But that's going to change. That's why we live in grace. Grace, marvelous grace. So you see the city metaphors now coming into the gospel, can't you? And God willing, I'll do. Well, do another one of that. Do another one. Make it that. Because it's interesting as when you see this, you go, what's that what that meant? You know? So the Lord bless us all. Look, there's near five name. One will just stand and we'll sing a quick.